From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. If you live in a state where abortions have been banned since the overturn of Roe v. Wade, accessing an abortion is a huge challenge. But unfortunately, access isn't the only challenge. Pursuing an abortion without leaving a trace poses another huge hurdle. If you search for resources online, if you get in your car and travel, if you text someone, if you ship pills to your house, will the state find out? In our daily lives, many of our actions are tracked for consumption and utilization by various companies and organizations. That data could now be used against you if you seek an abortion. We are used to hearing people shrug off data surveillance concerns. The saying from digital privacy naysayers goes, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. But now we maybe have something new to hide and therefore maybe something new to fear. Today we are digging into data privacy in a post-row world and learning both what we can individually do to best keep our data safe and what we can ask of data collectors and our government officials to help us in our pursuit of privacy. Joining us is Jennifer Granick, Surveillance and Cybersecurity Counsel for the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Jennifer, welcome to At Liberty. Thank you. Thanks, Kendall. So I think a simple place for us to start this conversation uh, about digital privacy is with a very easy question. What does the Constitution say or allude to about digital privacy? So the word privacy isn't in the Constitution, but we have, through the development of case law, found rights to privacy in many parts of the Constitution. When it comes to data privacy or the information that you generate as we move through the modern world, the Fourth Amendment is the main guardian of our privacy against the government. And it provides that we shall be secure in our persons, places, effects, and homes from unreasonable searches and seizures, and that when warrants issue, they must be based on probable cause and be particular in their description of the places to be searched and the things to be seized. Um, It stems from uh, early hatred um, on the part of the settlers um, against a British practice of general warrants, which basically was an authorization from the state to just go into people's houses and search their stuff without limitations or any kind of specification of reason. And so the founding fathers drafted the Fourth Amendment to address that problem of general warrants. That's great context for us and for the conversation we're going to have today. And I know that largely data privacy is not new, but digital data privacy and just the mass amounts of data that can be accrued about us as we live our daily lives is a bit new. How does the Fourth Amendment translate to digital data privacy? Has there been enough litigation or case law to really kind of understand the the confines around that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, 
Today, as we move through the world, we leave behind this incredible trail of information. Um, and that information may be on our cell phones or our laptops, um, or it could be stored with service providers in the cloud. And much of this information is something that's really never existed before. Um, so in the law, we're asking questions about, you know, what kinds of protections does this data get? Um, either from the Constitution or from statutes that legislatures pass between the location that's collected by your cell phone and the apps that you use um, to license plate readers and networked cameras and, you know, the potential of face recognition. There's a possibility for a truly comprehensive 24-7 documentation of where you go and who you hang out with. Um you know, so this type of information is just totally novel. Um, and so the law struggles to figure out how this information should be protected. Um, you know, the Fourth Amendment protects you against privacy invasions from the government, um, but it has to be what is considered a privacy invasion. And if you look at location, for example, People wouldn't normally think that when I walk down the street and go from my house to the grocery store, that that's private because anyone can look out their window and see me. But what about all my movements throughout the world for every moment of the day? And so courts are just beginning to find that there are privacy rights in that kind of systematic, overarching, inescapable tracking. Got it. Okay. So largely this is still a new landscape. When you think about the individual and our abilities to enter or exit a world of privacy violations, it, it can be a little bit discouraging because in order to engage in the world that we live in now, most of us hold a phone in our pockets. And I think that opens a whole can of worms. So I'm, thank you for just kind of giving us some context. This is all consistently changing too. I mean, it's rapid. And that's probably why the government and law hasn't caught up, right? Yeah, I think that's right. The law develops much more slowly than technology does. And so, you know, as you know, citizens were grappling with issues that, you know, maybe we've lived with for a little while, but we've never fully assessed like how we want to, you know, how we want to deal with it. But, but, you know, we have the right to expect better than just this privacy free for all. The law is there to protect us from the dangers that novel technology poses. And technology is also something that we should expect to protect us. You know, technology has taken our privacy away to some extent, but designs in, in technology can return privacy tests, can protect our privacy. I am one of the most eager adopters of new technology. Um, so to all the other people out there who love their TikTok or, you know, whatever it is, um, I'm with you. I love new innovations and it is totally possible to be a strong privacy advocate and also enjoy the fruits of modern innovation. I think that's a really good point because I think the moment we start talking about not using 
tools of technology in our daily lives from a, you know, data privacy standpoint, that's the, I think that's the moment people usually kind of zone out of the conversation because that to them feels like, well, then I can't engage with the world. So I want to focus on the intersection of digital privacy, abortion access, and criminalization. Um, That's really where I want to center the conversation today. Uh, A total of 17 states have moved to ban or restrict abortion since the overturn of Roe. Uh, obviously leaving so many people vulnerable. Now, our worst fear is that pregnant people who seek abortion or the people who assist them could be criminalized. Where does one's digital trace come into play here? Yeah. So when you have something that's a crime uh, in a particular state, um, the police are able to bring all the tools that they use for investigation of any crime to bear. The question that, you know, we have to ask is whether the law targets the provider, um, the person seeking an abortion or the people and organizations that are trying to help that person. How do you protect your information? so that you can continue to um, provide those essential services. And, um, you know, it, it, I don't want to, like I said a little bit earlier, I don't want to scare anybody off. Um, You're never going to be able to remove all risk that your data is going to be accessible to law enforcement, but you can minimize that risk um, by making some thoughtful choices about what technology you use, Um, whether you're communicating with someone who needs an abortion or you are that person. And we'll dig into some of those, but I want to clear out um, just a few top-level questions about the ability for law enforcement or government actors to obtain this kind of data. Do law enforcement have to have a warrant to obtain data as it pertains to someone seeking an abortion? Yeah, so it's a great question. and Unfortunately, a little more complicated than it should be. Um, The answer to that question should be yes, absolutely a warrant. Um, But the way our system works, it depends on, you know, sort of what kind of information it is. Um, I just want to take a moment and talk about warrants and why they're important. The thing that a warrant does is it requires the police to go to an independent and neutral person, a judge, and explain why they need the information. And then the police get a court order that says, here's what you can look for and really nothing else. And it guides the officer's discretion. So different information about us is protected under the law differently with the warrant being basically the highest level of protection. Um, And today, uh, law enforcement will get warrants for things like the contents of our communications. So our text messages, our DMs, um, you know, our email. Um, And today, law enforcement is also getting a warrant for our location information. But there are types of information for which law enforcement continues to assert that it does not need a warrant. And I would say, you know, an important factor there is where the data exists. So if the data exists on your phone, you know, or in a computer in your house, to take those items, law enforcement does need a warrant 
because it's inter it's either it's either going in your house or it's interfering, you know, it's taking your property, you know, you need a warrant. And as long as you're not giving consent for searching your cell phone, for example, that warrant requirement is there to protect you. Um, about 50% of all cell phone searches are based on consent, interestingly enough. And you're never, yeah, I was surprised to learn this too. And you're never obligated to give the police permission to search your phone. You can always wait until they get a warrant and that can't be used against you. So I just kind of want to flag for our audience. I, I know I understand the, um, you know, the, the, the sense of societal pressure. Intimidation. Yeah, exactly. Intimidation that people feel when the law, when the police officer has your phone mm -hmm. in their hand. Um, but you don't have to agree. But it's a more complicated legal set of protections when the information that we're talking about, um, even though it's the same sensitivity, rests in the hands of third parties like our online service providers. Um, and the government's argument there has been, well, since your information is in the hands of third parties and you've already shared it with some entities, it's not private anymore. And so it's not private with regards to us. Um, and that idea, that third party doctrine was, you know, something that, uh, investigators really relied on prior to the digital age. But now that technology has created this huge reservoir of sensitive information, um, the courts and even the Supreme Court are beginning to recognize that digital is different. And, you know, things like walking down the street are nothing like a ubiquitous, or, you know, a complete and thorough accounting of my location. And so this concept of the third party doctrine doesn't apply. But we don't have legal rulings about that question for lots of categories of data that are out there. So we're working, we're operating in a bit of a vacuum. Right. Uh, that is um, terrifying. <laughs> Oh, man, I, I don't want to say that. But um, yeah, that's my natural. Uh, that's my natural reaction. I want to ask you about this interplay between third party collectors like your Googles or your Facebooks, the government and the, the individual, which I know we just touched on a little bit. But after the Dobbs decision, after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, we did see some Big data collectors, right? Um, can't get them all, but some big data collectors. Google announced that it would delete location history when users visited an abortion clinic. Um, it's a good PR move in some in some regards for these big data collectors to uh, make some changes uh, to ensure greater data privacy around abortion access. Have have you seen things that were impressive to you? Is there enough that's happening here? Um, what else should we be asking of these big institutions? Yeah, it's a great question. There are a couple ways that companies can think about um, protecting our data. You know, don't collect it. If you collect it, don't keep it. If you keep it, anonymize it or delete it as soon as you don't need it anymore. And never ever sell it. Like that, those are things that companies really need to think about. Um, so, you know, you're talking about 
deleting sensitive information about people's location near um, abortion providers. You know, there are other categories of data that could be very relevant. You know, there's been a couple of examples of people's search histories being used as evidence in abortion-related investigations. You know, certain search engines don't collect that type of information. So like DuckDuckGo doesn't collect that information. But for uh, search engines that do collect that information, like Google's, um, this is information that because it's so sensitive and because of the risk to people today should be purged, um, just like that location data. In terms of collection, you know, not every tool that you use to communicate keeps your conversations forever and ever. So, you know, there are end-to-end encrypted applications, which means that the conversation only goes between you and the people you're talking to. And the service provider doesn't get copies of that information and can never recover it. Um, and end-to-end encryption is, you know, a lot of people use it because WhatsApp does, WhatsApp is end-to-end encrypted. iMessage is end-to-end encrypted. Those companies just don't have the contents of our communications over those particular tools, at least so long as you're not backing up to the cloud. Um, so police can't get that information. Signal is another tool that uses end-to-end encryption. You know, that's something that companies should implement wherever it's possible. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of discussion about period apps, specifically since the overturn of Roe. I think a lot of people think that, oh, well, my health data is protected because of HIPAA. Um, What can you tell people about period apps. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, from a legal perspective, I'll say that HIPAA um, doesn't help you here. HIPAA doesn't apply generally to the these app makers, and it doesn't protect data from law enforcement. Um, so that's not a legal protection. Um, we don't really think at this stage in the game that law enforcement is going to get a big download of information from period trackers and then kind of use artificial intelligence and to data mine it and kind of pluck out of the, you know, and pluck out of the set of data people who were pregnant and then no longer are. But we do think that that information will be useful in targeted investigations where there is a suspect and the police are trying to, you know, cultivate information or find evidence against that particular person. And there I would say, you know, you really want to look at your app and what the privacy practices are. Um, The safest way to hold that kind of data is with you only, locally. So it's stored on your phone or... You write it down on a piece of paper, you know, or something like that. And the service provider or the app maker doesn't have access to it. Because once the app maker has access to it, then it's a negotiation between that entity and the police about when the information is turned over. And of course, when we're talking about investigations in banned states where, you know, abortion is illegal, they'll be able to get a warrant because it is, you know, if it is a crime, if, if what you're doing is a crime. So um, 
you know, looking carefully at the privacy policies and at how the data is stored, I think is really important in order to be as safe as possible with that kind of information. And same with other health information as, as well. But not health information that you that is procured from you when you visit a doctor. That is protected under HIPAA, correct? Correct. That information is protected under HIPAA the, um, because there are medical providers and it basically means they can't share the information. But again, um, HIPAA doesn't have protections, strong protections against law enforcement. It doesn't require a warrant from law enforcement. I, I, so. I really hate that. <laughs> I, I mean, doc. I, think I know. That's bad. I know. Doctors have other responsibilities to their patients. You know, there are pre- evidentiary privileges and stuff. But um, you know, these are not as strong in the law as we might like them to be. And you know, I mean, as we start to adjust to this new world, you know, insisting on those stronger privacy protections and protecting that relationship between us and our doctors will become increasingly important. Yeah, I agree. I want to talk about mail order abortion pills, if we can, for a second. Abortion pills can be available by mail and you can access them through a variety of different resources. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, uh, what we're probably going to see more of um, are people self-managing their own abortions through the use of mail order abortion pills. What can we tell people about the security or privacy concerns around that experience? Yeah, I mean, government surveillance of mail is a is a thing. Um, the outside of packages, the government can access um, and take pictures of and store. Um, first class mail cannot be searched without a warrant that is private. Um, but there are like, uh, commercial classes of mail that can be inspected. Um, so, you know, that's one aspect of it. And I think that this issue is relevant to both the providers of the abortion pills and also the people who are, you know, planning to use them because you have, may have medication being mailed from pharmacies out of state or out of the country into states where uh, abortion is, uh, where this kind of abortion may be prohibited or regulated. And so you have this complicated, you know, jurisdictional issue about what police can find out um, or do to investigate people who are acting totally lawfully in their state or country, um, but maybe assisting somebody in doing something unlawful in their own state. Um, I think that, uh, you know, packages should not advertise what is in them in order to protect people's privacy. I think that the federal government could take action to help people by refusing to provide this data or cooperate with state and local investigations that are about abortion um, or, you know, pregnancy-related activity. Got it. Well, I think that's a good transition into talking about um, what we can ask of our government, um, whether that be our state governments or the federal government, as far as our privacy protections. Um, I want to start with 
talking about what we're pushing for at the ACLU as far as uh, getting state legislation to prevent law enforcement from making overly broad requests to identify anyone who visited a particular location or searched online for particular keywords. Um, what are we doing specifically to push data privacy forward in the wake of Dobbs? Yeah, so I mentioned that there are a number of states that are seeking to take affirmative steps to protect people's data privacy. Um, California just passed a law that makes it possible for in-state entities to challenge warrants from out of state. So, you know, since most of the major tech companies are located in California, um, you know, the, the ability to basically challenge or resist warrants on jurisdictional and other grounds is really important. So that's been, that's now possible. Um, other states I know are, uh, and our affiliates are advocating for laws that would prevent the kind of mass dragnet surveillance through troves of data to kind of pluck suspects out. So, um, and warrants like, uh, geofence warrants or tower dump warrants, which are basically ways to figure out who was near a particular place at a particular point in the past. Um, and these reverse search warrants that we were talking about where you might look for anybody who has searched for, um, you know, how to get abortion drugs or something like that. So we have um, been pushing for, um, been pushing at the state level with our affiliates for bans on using these types of technologies um, in general, or at least in the context of these particular investigations and trying to prevent law enforcement in states that protect the right to abortion from participating in the criminalization and prosecution of providers or people in other states. And what kind of pressure could we put on the Biden administration, for example? They seem to be amenable to helping uh, protect whatever little access we may still have uh, around abortion. What should we be asking of them? Yeah, we can pressure the Biden administration to withhold assistance through these collaborative means for uh, in the context of abortion investigations. So one thing is fusion centers and fusion centers are basically where information from lots of different law enforcement agencies is uh, aggregated and analyzed together. And, you know, we can ask and should ask the Biden administration to implement policies that prohibit state and local police departments from using the information in fusion centers to investigate or prosecute abortion-related crimes. And there are a series of uh, regional computer forensic laboratories, as well as other kinds of laboratories, um, that you know, help state and local law enforcement with the technological challenges of different investigations. And again, these forensic laboratories should refuse, and the Biden administration can insist that they refuse, to um, provide assistance in investigations that have to do with abortion. One other thing that, you know, the federal government can do, because it's not just the Biden administration, it's Congress uh -huh. also, um, is to take steps to protect our data better. Right. Um, 
you know, a national privacy law, consumer privacy, a national privacy law that protects our data, um, including health data would be great. Um, one of the big loopholes for law enforcement is that, um, they can sometimes buy our most sensitive data, whether it's health data or location data. You know, not all the companies out there that manufacture apps are uh, the most reputable. And there are lots of companies out there that collect our data, um, often without our really understanding it, and then sell it to data brokers who then sell it further on down the road to advertisers and to the federal government. And there's been a number of news stories about law enforcement getting huge troves of data from these data brokers. So there is a bill that would stop this from happening. The Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. And that would basically say law enforcement can't buy data that it wouldn't otherwise be able to get with a warrant. And that would go a long way to protecting our information from the sale and resale by data brokers, which just basically puts it at risk of great exposure to the government. And the status of that bill is that it's been stalled at the moment? Is that I would say it's pending. Pending. Um, and, okay. you know, yeah, I would say More it's pending. More positive and, you know, the ACL... <laughs> I don't think you can do this job, Kendall, without a little bit of irrational optimism. <laughs> so, um, but no, I mean, this is a bill that has bipartisan support. Um, it has had great public support as well. And it's especially relevant right now in this political moment. And I know that um, we... Uh, sometimes have like action alerts where it's a good time to call your representative and ask that they support this bill. So, you know, there will be more times <laughs> in the, you know, coming months um, where it's a good time to push for this bill to move forward. And as I said, it does have bipartisan support and it is particularly relevant and important right now. I love all of that. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us break down this very complicated topic that feels, I think, pretty overwhelming to most people. But you found a way to make it um, hopeful and more simple and um, accessible to us. So we really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for the good conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. A quick note from our Massachusetts affiliate. Want to learn more about how technology interplays with our civil rights and civil liberties? Check out the ACLU of Massachusetts new four-part podcast series called Freedom Unfinished. The series explores emerging technologies and the impact of artificial intelligence, big data, and biometric surveillance on civil liberties and democracy, and features guests like Senator Ed Markey and Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalists. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Freedom unfinished. Okay, until next week, stay strong.